If you were born between the years 1995 and 2010, which reduces this room to about three people, do you know what the label that is that is put on you by sociologists? If you're born between 95 and 2010, you're known as Generation what? Z. Gen Z. That's right. Now, it's a sociological term. I can't give you a chapter and verse for that. But those born between 1995 and 2010, sociologists have labeled Gen Z. Not Gen Y, the generation before that. Not Gen X, the generation before that. Not the Boomers 2. Not the Boomers 1. Not the golden generation and not the war generation. So uh, you know all that. Did you know that one of the chief characteristics of Gen Z is this concept of stolen innocence? And it's due in part, as you've just heard me pray, a day after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It's due in part, sociologists will tell you, uh, to 9-11 that those born between 95 and 2010 are born into anxiety and they're born into fear. And they are, as such, due in part, not exclusively, but in part to the events of of 9-11. Now, by stolen innocence, what I mean is that Gen Z has known these such traumatic events that they're marked by this anxiety and fear. And therapists and psychologists... um, see very clearly trends in this demographic uh, of young people who are just filled with fear. They know nothing but fear because their life has been engulfed by these traumatic events. Violations of personhood are the norm for our junior high school. The kids that I sit down with over the course of my now eighth year uh, as the principal of NDCA bear testimony to this because our junior hires, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, display a lot of this. And they have seen the the, the traumatic effects of a number of events that call into question uh, God, that call into question parents, that call into question marriage, that call into question life, that call into question the security of property, and things like that. This is not hypothetical. I've sat with kids who have literally expressed to me their deep concern about life at home, about life displayed in video games and YouTube videos and life displayed here in this school and so forth. It's one of the reasons why NDCAs can be so mind-bending for so many kids who are just joining us because this is a culture that they're just not entirely used to. And there's a lot that they have to actually grow in their believing that we really care for them, that there's actually love here, even from strangers, people that they're just missing. Stolen innocence. Now, if you listen carefully to, to, to me and what I just said, uh, it was one of those little revelatory moments for me in this past week where I, I realized well, here again, without even searching for it, is the, the foundational, oftentimes hidden, work of the Word of God in the form of the Ten Commandments woven into the fabric of the world in which we live. We see the foundational life-protecting infrastructure 
that the Ten, the Ten Commandments provide for human flourishing. There is this intuition that each and every image bearer possesses in the sense that this is the way things ought to be. And then they look out through their lenses and they realize this is not any way near what or the way things ought to be. The Ten Commandments, as I've said each week, provide... Uh, the infrastructure, the scaffolding, the outline, if you please, for human flourishing, for our image-bearing neighbor. It's one of the reasons why God designed them and gave them to his people so long ago and continue to give them to his people in this 21st century. If you obey this, these sets of commands, this way of life, human beings flourish. Trauma is reduced. Violence is reduced, and our image-bearing neighbors come to understand that there is a world that is controlled by a loving God. Today we take up commandment number eight. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, part of what our sister Lynn read for us this morning. And it, again, is another one of those two words in the original language commands, you shall not steal. And again, it's another one of those that is so black and white, you're standing here wondering, how in the world can you talk for any length of time on that? We get it. Don't take what's not yours, period, full stop. I get it. But I want to push in a little bit, and I ask you to consider, why is it wrong to take something that belongs to somebody else? What happens when you do that? What is called into question when something gets stolen? I don't know if you've had the experience of something being stolen from you and the, the hole that it leaves in the parsonage in Bay Ridge when I pastored there. With the garage door open and my car in the driveway and my wife, daughter, and myself at the dinner table, somebody walked into my driveway, passed my car, and took a two or $300 bicycle out of the garage while we're there, feet away, inside at the dining room table. And I come out after dinner thinking I'd go for a little bit of a bike ride, which was a gift that was given to me by the church, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And lo and behold, somebody had walked into the driveway, taken the bike out of the garage with the car there and the family in the house. I can remember my wife will vouch. I can remember walking around for weeks just feeling sick to my stomach that I had been violated that somebody came onto my property and took my stuff. It was only a bike, but you know enough about me and the way that I think, man, oh man, did it send me off for a few weeks of a lot of reflection and thinking about the horrors of stealing and what it does to people, what it does to society, what it does to your neighborhood. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It's a command that at its heart, You've heard this language an awful lot because we're talking about the heart here. We're not talking about just external conforming to a law. We say that over and over and over in this pulpit. The law has never, nor will it ever, convert anybody. Pressing the law can alter behavior, but altered behavior does not necessarily reflect a regenerated heart. It is a command that at its heart, very simple this morning, forbids discontentment. Let me say it again, because this is is our paradigm, right? What does it forbid? What does it require? 
at its heart, commandment number eight forbids discontentment. Discontentment with our place in life and with God's providence. The eighth commandment, on the other hand, requires, it's not rocket science, requires satisfaction. Requires contentment. Not discontentment, but contentment with the hand that the Lord has dealt you. With his providences, sweet and or bitter. This is at the heart of the Eighth Commandment. We reject discontentment. We pray for satisfaction, for contentment in what it is that God has given or not given. Or perhaps even what God has taken away. But first, you're with me now, right? You knew that was coming, right? But first, what does it mean to steal? What does it mean to steal? Everybody in the room can answer that question, right? Stealing is taking something that does not belong to you without permission. That's stealing, right? If I say to John after church, hey, look at the fly on that wall, and I grab his guitar and run out the door, that's stealing. I'm taking something that does not belong to me, and John has not given me permission. Though knowing John's heart, if I asked if I could borrow John's guitar, John would probably pick it up and deliver it to me. Although I don't know exactly how attached John is to this guitar, so I don't know. (laughs) Stealing is taking something that does not belong to you without permission. What are the implications of this definition? What are the implications of this commandment? There are several. Let me give you them so we can set this up. Um, It implies the good of ownership. If owning something is not good, then the command to steal makes no sense. However, that has to be tempered with the reality of Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything therein. Okay, so let's be clear from the get-go here that you technically don't own anything. It's all God's. And and I want to push this a little bit because everybody smiles and everybody says, you go, you good Orthodox preacher and everything belongs to the Lord. We all love that. And then, and then somebody calls you this afternoon and says, hey, can I borrow your car? And you're like, uh, no. Why? Because it's mine. And I don't want you taking it, possibly wrecking it. Yeah, but didn't we say in church this morning that that car is really the Lord's? And the Lord has told me to tell you that I need your car this afternoon. <laughs> the Eighth Commandment implies the good of ownership. Hang with me there, because I'm going somewhere. It implies the, 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 the goodness of the reward for hard work. Now, I'm, I, I want to be sure that I'm biblical here more than Western, more than American here, because this is going to sound just like the American dream. It's going to sound just like the Protestant work ethic. But the scriptures make it abundantly clear that based on the Eighth Commandment, there is good in ownership and there is an, a legitimate expectation in the reward for hard work. The reason why I have stuff is because I've worked hard for it. And that's, that's a virtue. I did not procure it by stealing it. I have books because I've worked my butt off and expended some of that reward for that hard work to buy books. It also, uh, by by the way, and those of you who think along these lines, you automatically see how biblically we cannot sustain the model of socialism. 
of communism. The Eighth Commandment is contra to those kinds of things. If everything is owned by the state, which if you listen to me carefully, in a socialistic or communistic paradigm, the state replaces God. However, however, please be sure to write down and look at, at your leisure, Acts chapter 4, verses 32, 34, and 35. Those are the verses that people who like to be provocative go to and say, see, Christianity supports socialism. No, it doesn't. But we have to bring to balance this idea, according to Acts 4.32, in the early church at least, they didn't think of themselves as owning anything. And see, somebody will stand right up and say, see, socialism. That's not the exact same thing. Don't forget, in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, Peter, in the Ananias and Sapphira situation, Peter says to Ananias, the reason why the, the Holy Spirit is going to strike you down is not because you own stuff. No, it's perfectly fine that you own stuff, Ananias. However, you conspired to withhold that which you said you were going to give. That's your sin. The sin is not in the ownership. The sin is in saying, I'm going to give this, and then withholding. The implication is that you don't trust God. Okay? So, the Eighth Commandment expresses the good of ownership, the reward of hard work, contra socialism, but Christians hold on to their stuff loosely. Because if a neighbor has need, and you have more than what you need, and you say, go be warm and well-fed... You're worse than an unbeliever. Your stuff is not yours. See, nobody says amen when I say that. The Lord owns it all. Amen. The Lord's owned your stuff and you don't own anything. Crickets. Wait a minute. Didn't you just say I worked really hard for my stuff? I worked really hard for it. I'm not going to give it to some freeloader, even if he is a brother in need. Tell me I'm lying now. Another implication is that the Eighth Commandment also assumes a responsibility for respect for that ownership. Vinny, you have stuff that I might desire, but out of my love and obedience to the Eighth Commandment, I'm going to respect your ownership of that. And so you can see the, the other things that are tied up with the Eighth Commandment, envy, covetousness, lust, all these kinds of things. They're all organic and all intertwined. He might pull away in a brand new car and I might sit there and drool over the car and think, oh, Vinny's got one. Why can't I have one? That's a sin. I'm violating the Eighth Commandment. I respect what he has. I don't take it from him. I don't try to coerce him. I don't try to passive-aggressive getting it, get away from him. I respect that. Another implication is that stealing, either passive or aggressive, there are different forms of stealing, I'll talk about that in a second, stealing, aggressive and passive, threatens the social order. It threatens your neighborhood. It threatens the fabric of this church. You take what does not belong to you, and it's like a ball with a thread that you just start, and it all becomes unraveled. Threatens the social order, God's design. Vinny has the car that he has by God's design. It's Vinny's car, it's not my car. That's God's design. 
I violate God's design by trying to take Vinny's car from him. It creates friction between the two of us, between my family and his family, and the order starts to crumble. And it causes pain to others, which is the exact antithesis of neighbor love. That person who walked down my driveway, went into my garage, and took my bike caused, at least in a small part, a disintegration of the agreed-upon order that we as a society have. Mine, not yours, don't take it, we'll get along. Whoever that person was, don't know to this day who did it, the Lord does. Vengeance is his, says the Lord. But what he did is the antithesis of neighbor love. I walked out after dinner and I looked in that garage, saw my bike gone. Do you think for a second I thought this person who took my bike loves me? Mm -mm -mm. I did think, what in the world could this person possibly have going on in his heart that he would just walk right into a driveway and take something that is not his? What's even more scary about that whole scene is that I had been watched because there is no way from the street that you would have known that that bike was in that garage, particularly with a car in the driveway. I had been watched. Stealing, uh, the scriptures are very clear, um, is wrong. You can steal from your neighbor. Um, Just the next chapter in Exodus, which we won't look at because I want to go to Leviticus. But in Exodus chapter 22, you can write that passage down if you like. Exodus 22, 1 to 16, the Lord unpacks the implications of stealing amongst his people. And then in Leviticus 19, and I I do this just to show you that this isn't a one-time deal. It's, It's carried on through not only the Old Testament, as we'll see in a couple of minutes, into the New Testament as well. Leviticus 19, verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. See how, see how the writer ties these things together? Leviticus 19, 11, listen, you shall not steal, you don't deal falsely, don't lie to one another, don't swear by my name falsely. And then verse 13 of 19, uh, Leviticus 19, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. See, that's passive stealing. You have a day laborer who works for you and, you and you agree that you'll pay him at the end of the day and then at the end of the day comes you say, oh, my bad, I'll pay you in the morning. That's stealing. You're withholding. Unless, of course, it was something that was agreed upon. But there's a passive form of stealing as well. You have something for someone and you hold it back. As opposed to the more run-of-the-mill aggressive stealing where if that's yours, I'm taking it. End of the story. Fascinatingly enough, we can also steal from God. I mean, to steal from neighbor is obviously to, uh, to steal from one of God's image bearers, which is to say you have, st- you have sinned against God when you have sinned against a neighbor. In Malachi, one of the best-known passages uh, that is often used by preachers like myself to lean on people when money is running low. Here's where we go. We go, to, we go to the old Malachi 3, 7 and following passage to let everybody know and to guilt them into increasing their giving. That if you're not giving sacrificially, you are robbing God. And is there anybody in the, in the building who wants to be known as a robber of God? Okay, pastor, okay, pastor, I'll give you more, I'll give you more. It's not what I'm doing right now. 
Malachi chapter 3, but I want to show you what it says. Malachi 3, 7. Because one of the things that the people of God are doing by this point in time, we're right on the cusp of the intertestamental period, the Old Testament's about to close, and there's 400 years of silence before we get the genealogy and the entry of Matthew's Messiah into the world. This is on the cusp of that, on the other side, before the 400 years of silence. God aggravated with his children, and one of the things that they're doing in their sinning against him is they're withholding their tithes. They're withholding their offerings, probably because they're fearful. If I give you this, Lord, uh, uh, how, how, how is it going to work? And that phenomenon is exactly the same today. You and I know that firsthand. You take out that checkbook, you write that check. Uh, I can give this, but if I go there... Mm, how, many, how many of us, honestly, how many of us in the room write an offering check such that you literally have to alter your life in order to give what you're writing on that check. Because you know that the New Testament does not teach tithing. Okay, now I'm meddling. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Okay, you've been disobeying my commandments. Return to me, and I'll return to you, said the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8 of Malachi 3. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and your contributions. Verse 9, Malachi chapter 3, or as the Italians say, Malachi. Malachi 3.9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And now God challenges them forthrightly. You think you can now give me, God says? You're withholding from me because you think I can't provide for you? Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. God's actually challenging his people. Try to outgive me. Go ahead, watch what happens. That... And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. Remember, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. Understand now that when the Old Testament uses the word tithe, you think 10%. And I'm grateful for those of you who are giving 10%. Please don't, I'm not getting in this sideways here. I'm grateful for those of you who are giving that way, especially if 10% is sacrificial. But for many of us, 10% is not sacrificial. The tithe, even in the Old Testament, was probably, some estimate, up to somewhere near 30%. Given all the offerings that had to be put together, all that had to be, the, the, the grain offerings, the the, the oil offerings, all these things for the temple and so on and so forth would have been this. And so now, stop and think about it for a second. Now, that'll, that'll make us squirm a little bit in our seats. Like, okay, I'm working really hard to get to 10%. God bless you. And I mean that. I really do. 30%? It'd devastate me. It'd wipe me out. And I'm not suggesting that you need to be giving 30%. But, as my wife will tell you, one of the mantras that's in our house comes right out of the mouth of King David, who said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. So when we give, that's the question we have to ask. Not how much do I have left, or whether or not I can check the box because here's my 10%. The question is, has my giving, has my giving cost me something? 
you can violate the Eighth Commandment against neighbor and against God. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, verse 9, this is kind of a flagship verse in this series because Paul quotes half of the Ten Commandments in that. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you get that? That's the Ten Commandments. You want to fulfill the Ten Commandments? Love your neighbor. That's what the Bible says. 13, 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to your neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. How do I fulfill the eighth commandment? I love my neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? Love means sacrificial giving on behalf of another. It is other-centered. That's how I keep the commandment, to love my neighbor. In Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 28, this is also huge. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul gives us a, a, an antidote to this. In 4.28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal. Well, what should he do? Rather, let him labor. See, work is the antithesis of stealing. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see what Paul does there? He takes the Eighth Commandment and he turns it entirely on its head because he says, let the thief work. You would expect him to say, let the thief work so that he can provide for himself so he doesn't have to steal. But Paul takes it one step further and says, not only will the one who works an honest job be able to provide for himself, but you'll also be in a place to give. You see the transformation that occurs in the new covenant? The thief becomes generous. He reverses thievery. And instead of taking from somebody, he gives it to somebody. That's what the gospel will do for you. It'll, it'll, break, it'll break the bondage that you have, that I have, to stuff, and to security that comes from that stuff. It is, if you please, how to move from stealing to stewardship. John Frame writes, in summary, the Eighth Commandment mandates a lifestyle of generosity, of compassion, of love. To keep the Eighth Commandment is both to give everyone his due, that's respect, and beyond that, to sacrifice our good, goods in love for others, just as Jesus gave his life for us. You see, he, that's the model. The Eighth Commandment mandates both justice and mercy. That's good. That's real good. So a couple quick questions. We'll try to bring this together here. What does the, first, what does the Eighth Commandment forbid? It forbids discontentment. Using Vinny as my foil here again, I ought not to lust after his car. What God calls me instead to is to be content with my Honda Civic. For my lusting after Vinny's car 
is a rejection of God's will and provision for me in my 2013 Honda Civic. God's basically saying to me, what about that car do you not like that I have provided for you that you would such want to, if you're given the opportunity, steal from your brother? The Eighth Commandment forbids discontentment. I don't like what I have. I want more. I want his. I want something else than what has been given to me. When we press to the heart of the matter, stealing is more than taking something without permission that is not yours. It is discontentment with our God-ordained, God-given station in life. I mentioned James a little bit earlier, and though James, not explicitly talking and describing stealing, writes powerfully, powerfully to the heart of the matter of which we speak. In James chapter 4, he says this, James 4, beginning in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. See, this is the spiritual adultery that we have spoken about. He's talked about coveting. He's talked about murder. And all of it is under adultery. You are adulterous people. So my lusting after Vinny's car makes me an adulterer. Why? Because I'm, I want another love. I'm declaring to God that he, his love toward me is insufficient and that I must supplement it. This is why, Lord have mercy. This is why it is absolutely mind-boggling to me that the prosperity gospel has any traction anywhere. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's not done. If you look across the page and go to James chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, speaking to the rich, that's you and me, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud. See the stealing? That's the passive stealing. You owe these people who worked for you, and you held it back. You were fraudulent. You duplicitously faked out your workers. You owe them the money. You kept it. That's stealing. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters had reached the ears of the lords of hosts. Guess where that's going to end? In other words, taking and keeping are violations of the Eighth Commandment. Discontentment with what God has given or not given to us, and that's really more of the challenge, isn't it? Lord, I want this. You said you would give me the desires of my heart if. Discontentment with what God has given or not. Remember Job, right? Job 1:21. The Lord has given and the Lord takes away. What's the next line? Blessed be the name of the Lord, even when he takes away. Leads us to all kinds of heart disclosures, all forms of idolatry. 
Thankfully, I come, with you, I come to you with good news, brothers and sisters. God has given us a prayer to pray. You can write this down. I will lead us in this brief prayer right now. It is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Proverbs 37 to 9. Here's a prayer that we can pray in our battle against discontentment. Two things I ask of you, O God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Proverbs 30, verse 9. Lest I be full and I deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I pray that for myself. I pray that for you. Lord, keep me from poverty. Keep me from riches. Both are going to separate me from you. Please do not let it happen. What does the Eighth Commandment require? And it's just the backside of this. If the Eighth Commandment forbids discontentment, the Eighth Commandment requires contentment, satisfaction. And it's a learned satisfaction. It's a learned contentment with the sweet and bitter providence of our Lord. I'm looking into the eyes of my dear brother standing back there in that psalm booth right now, and I've been thinking of him all week as I prepared this sermon. I'm thinking, he's going to hear me, and he's going to hear me declare to him, as a hearer of what I'm proclaiming right now, to be content with the bitter providence of God that has been dealt with him, dealt to him in the last couple of weeks. He's lost everything in his basement. And if I'm preaching this rightly and gently, he needs to hear from the Spirit of the Lord that he is to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Jeremiah Burroughs is one of my heroes. He's a 17th century Puritan. He's written a classic that for over 400 years, nearly 400 years, has not gone out of print. I commend it to you. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's not an easy read, but it'll bless your time invested in it. He describes contentment like this. Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious, frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, that's a Puritan, and it's heavy, and it's dense, but you will not do better. I'll read it again one one more time slowly. If you want it, I'll get a copy of it to you. Glad to do that. The book is Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in. It's not a begrudging. Okay, I'll accept this from you, God. It is submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's Job 121. 
The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's the biblical basis as we wind this down. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Godliness with what is great gain? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And he writes further, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Godliness with contentment, great gain. If we have the staples, the basics of life, we will be content. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 5, says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God tells us, what more could you need if I have promised to never leave you and never forsake you and that anything that may come your way is out of my wise, fatherly hand toward you. Church, keep yourself from the love of money because the Lord has promised never to leave your side. It doesn't come naturally. You've heard me repeat the word, learned. It's learned. Those of you steeped in your scriptures, you know where I'm going with this, right? Where does the Bible tell us that somebody has learned to be content? Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Listen to what Paul says. Paul, you know Paul, right? Who's been through the ringer and back. I have learned, he says it twice, Philippians 4, 11 to 13. I have learned in whatever situation... I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. So the trials that you're experiencing right now is placing you in God's classroom that you might learn the secret of contentment despite your circumstances. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the refrigerator magnet verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But this is where you hear me go on my little rants. And I refer to it somewhat sarcastically as a refrigerator magnet verse because we yank Philippians 4.13 out and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me everywhere and at all times. It's not a bad thing, but right here in the context, I need you to see it and I need you to savor it. That you can do these things through Christ when the times are hard as well as when they're abounding. That's the exact context when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, I can stay forward, I can keep going because Christ strengthens me, not because I just got a pay raise.
This is where we finish. We move from stealing to stewardship. Here is the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Here is the secret to maturing from stealing in all of its forms to stewardship. Here is what I'm calling the cornerstone that made, that made, past tense, that made all of this possible for the first century Christians. How did they do it? How did they do it? Under the thumb of the Roman emperors. Here's the cornerstone that not only made it possible for the first century Christians, it makes it, present tense, makes it all possible for 21st century Staten Island Christians. The answer is very simply, they were able to do it, you and I are able to do it, because of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's the foundation upon which all of this teaching is built. It's found, as you might suspect, in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, and this is the secret to moving from stealing to stewardship. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. If you're counting on your security, if you're counting on your comfort, if you're counting on your health, if you're counting on your family to see you to the end, Jesus is rattling the cage here a little bit and says, all of those things in a heartbeat can be taken away from you. And some of you sitting in this room know that firsthand. Verse 20, Matthew 6, pivots on the but. But what am I to do otherwise, Jesus? Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So you ask yourself about your investments, your day-to-day lives. Is this procuring for me any security in the afterlife? Or is this immediately grounded in the circumstances of my life in this very moment? It's a discipline, and it's not an easy one. It's why we need one another. Are my investments heavenward? Am I holding on to my possessions, my monies, loosely? Am I generous? Because that's earning me favor, if you please when I arrive. It may cause me hardship here in the here and now, but the here and now is just that, here and now. And tomorrow, poof. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and nobody can walk into your garage and steal your bike. Thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, Jesus goes there, doesn't he? All the time, relentlessly. Yeah, he cares about your outward behavior, but he knows that the outward behavior is a function of your heart. And I say that to my kids all the time. Yeah, I see what you're doing, but I want to know what's ticking. 
I want to know what's ticking, because I know you can play me. I know you can make it look like they did it. But I used to be way slyer than you when I was in junior high, and you haven't done anything that has impressed me yet. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to leave you with a simple question. The the simple request. That's not even a question. The simple request. That before you drift off to sleep this evening, ask the Lord one very simple question. Lord, where exactly is my heart? And reveal it to me. Because this is a little bit of goldfish in the bowl like asking a goldfish to describe water. We might need to ask a brother or sister. We might need to ask a close friend who's in the Lord. Hey, do you see me buying into the way of the world more than the way of the kingdom? Because for you, you might think you're just fine. But my fear, and and this is a fear, my wife will also bear testimony to this too, My fear is that even though we give sacrificially and therefore I run the risk of feeling pretty good about myself along these lines, by what standard am I measuring myself? Am I measuring myself against this population? And should that be my standard? What if I measured my standard against the world's average. Now I'm one of the richest people on the planet. And my giving looks rather paltry by comparison. This isn't the big lean to give more money. It's not. You know me well enough. But you know where my big lean comes. My big lean comes is that I want your heart to be absolutely and totally sold out to Jesus. Full stop. And if that means poking a little bit, stepping on your toes every once in a while, just to ask the question about whether or not we're beholden to particular patterns of American culture, I'm going to do it. Because it would be unloving, unloving of me to let us believe that you can follow Christ and have all of that too. Because you can't. You will either love the one and hate the other. The Eighth Commandment. Do not steal. God gave his only son. He withheld nothing so that we have a model of sacrificial giving for the sake of another. That's at the heart of the commandments, and especially the eighth one. May the Lord have mercy on each and every one of us as we desire to obey him and keep in step with his spirit. We will ask this, Father, of you in the name of Jesus, our Lord, and we will thank you. In the spirit of Romans chapter 8, as Paul asks us, if he has not spared his own son, will he not 
together with him, give us all that we need. And Peter is going to pick that up in 2 Peter chapter 1 and remind us that all that we need for life and for godliness, and I'll add, contentment is given to us in Christ Jesus. So, Father, in the power of your spirit, bring it home. Come down on the ground with us and show us where we are beholden to the things of this world that we might become deeper friends with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.